Well, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke. Today we're in Luke chapter 16. If you've got a bulletin on the way in, pull that out. gives you an outline and will help you follow along some. I want to start this morning by uh, int- introducing you to an individual. There's this picture there. Uh, his name is Fritz Haber, and Fritz lived from 1868 to 1934. And the reason that I start with uh, Fritz's story today is that he has been described as the best and the worst chemist in history. The best and the worst chemist in history. Now, Fritz, as you probably guessed from his name, was a German, a German chemist. In 1918, he received the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for his invention of the Haber-Bosch process. Now, I am no scientist. I've just read this stuff, okay? And so, Carrie, if I get this all wrong, you'll have to explain it later. Uh, We have farmers in the room. We have science teachers in the room. And so... Uh, you know, cut me some slack here. But the, what, the way that I understand the, what he discovered is uh, the Haber-Bosch, the Haber process, converts atmospheric nitrogen into ammonia by a reaction with hydrogen through high temperature and pressure. Now, that may mean nothing to you. It didn't mean much to me when I first read it either. But the end result is that uh, that process allows the creation of ammonia and is foundational in the production of fertilizer. Within three years of uh, Fritz uh, discovering all of that, within three years, that technique was industrialized uh, to uh, produce fertilizer, something that our world's agricultural system is deeply dependent upon today. Uh, It is estimated that half of the crops in the world today are nourished by fertilizers created by the process invented by Fritz Haber. Now, that's pretty cool. This one guy is responsible, it's kind of hard to describe just how impactful that has been. This one guy is responsible for producing the food that literally billions of people in the past 100 years have, have counted on, have depended on, and literally changed the agricultural industry uh, in that time. It's an incredibly positive legacy, and that's the, the best chemist in history side of, of Fritz's story. But there's the other side. Uh, the other side of Fritz Haber, though he was born Jewish, um, he very much identified as German. <clears throat> and when World War I broke out, uh, he uh, enthusiastically supported the German cause. He was quickly assigned to head the chemistry section at the Ministry of War. He took an active role in that position, and Fritz personally oversaw the development and the very first use of chemical weapons in warfare. In World War One, uh, April the twenty-second, nineteen fifteen, during the Second Battle of uh, Vipers, the Germans released tons of chlorine gas on a four-mile stretch. And if you remember World War One's history, it was all fought in trenches, very much. And so, uh, five thousand Allied soldiers died as a result of that chlorine gas being dumped on that five-mile stretch. And it was all under the guidance of Fritz Haber. Um, Worse still, his work was later uh, used to create a hydrogen-based pesticide that became known as Zyklon B. And when the Nazis came to power in Germany, Zyklon B uh, was the, um, the primary agent used in the gas chambers of the Holocaust, killing millions, millions of Jews. 
including uh, Fritz's, several of Fritz's own nieces and nephews. And so you take those two sides and you're, you see the description kind of fits. Here is the greatest chemist in history, foundational in providing food for billions of people over the past hundred years, and at the same time the worst chemist in history because it was his work uh, that led to the execution, the death uh, of millions of people as well. His legacy is one of opposing extremes, responsible for saving more lives and also responsibility, responsible for taking more lives than any other chemist in history. Now, it may not seem initially obvious, but the contradiction of Fritz's legacy leads well into the topic that we're going to talk about this morning. Because if you see the sermon handout there, and look at the title on there, you realize we're going to discuss money. I appreciate praise team finding some songs there. Uh, it's, uh, there's not too many songs in the hymn book about money, you know, or in, uh, uh, in the filing cabinets downstairs about that. Uh, it's one of those awkward topics to discuss, but it shows up in the Bible so many, so many times. Uh, and the title of today's sermon uh, is A Puzzling Parable About Money. Uh, like Fritz, money is it presents this complex set of contradictions in a sense in our lives. Uh, on one side, you need money to live. And we all know that, right? We all know that we count on it. It is good in many, many ways. Meaningful work provides money that enables us to take care of our families, to buy food, to have a nice place to live, to make society better, uh, to purchase things that we enjoy and to pay for th experiences that we enjoy in life. All of that is, is good. And, and you can even step into the spiritual realm and realize that money enables us to accomplish God's mission in this world. There are missionaries that are only supported because generous people give money. Uh, there are church ministries like those that happen here at Calvary, only possible because generous people give money. Uh, money carries with it this enormous potential for good and, and should never be considered evil in and of itself because it's not. It holds this wonderful opportunity for blessing. And that's one side. But I think all of us know this from our own personal history that money easily becomes dangerous, right? It uh, can become divisive. I read this past week that it is the second leading cause of divorce in our country, disagreements about money. Uh, it can become obsessive because I think money can just sort of dominate a person's thinking either through worrying about not having enough of it, and, you know, and how I'm going to pay these bills and all that kind of thing, or sort of the fixation on how to get more. Very quickly it can dominate our thinking. And again, you can slip to the spiritual side of things and realize that money uh, and sort of uh, getting more money and grabbing more of the things money can buy is one of the greatest lures, the greatest distractions um, from the greater issues of eternity. Quite possibly in our society, a very prosperous country and culture that we live in, more than anything else, money becomes a competitor for God and people's hearts. Uh, that's why Paul wrote very familiar words, 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith, pierced themselves with many griefs. And you know the, the important underline there, the important disclaimer there. It's not money is the root of all kinds of evil, right? 
that's that would contradict the good side of money. It's that love of money. It's that uh, falling in love and the craving of money that carries danger and has led many people far afield from God. So money is is kind of this two-sided monster. Uh, it holds potential for great good and potential for extreme evil, and that's true today. It was true in Jesus' day. And he talked about it an awful lot. Uh, I read this past week that Jesus told something like 40 parables. And of those 40 parables, one-third of them deal with money in some way. And so you just can't get around it. And Jesus came back to it over and over again. And today we come to one of those. And so, like I said, if you've got your Bible, uh, find Luke 16 or the Bible app on your phone. We're going to look at the first, uh, the first 18 verses together this morning. Uh, my title uses the word puzzling uh, for a reason. This parable is one of the most debated, somewhat startling stories that Jesus told. And you'll see why in a minute. I called it one of Jesus' most unexpected stories. So let's read the first eight verses to get going. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. Manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? Thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill, make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. Now, just reading that initially, you can already see, yeah, this is kind of one of those puzzling parables. What was the point? Um, why would Jesus make this story up? Uh, he he uh, told the parables always to, to communicate something, uh, some very important message. And the message all down through here uh, is about money. Now, through this story, Jesus introduces us to this rich man and his uh, manager, someone unscrupulous of a manager. The manager is accused of misusing the owner's funds. The accusation, accusation seemed to be credible enough because the guy's going to lose his job. And hearing that he is about to lose his job, he takes matters into his own hands. He calls into his boss's clients and just slashes their bills substantially. Uh, the first one, 900 gallons of olive oil, becomes 450. Just half off discount, buddy. Here you go. Uh, for reference sake, 900 gallons of olive oil was like three years worth of salary. So add up what you make in three years. That's how much he, he, uh, he took a year and a half off of that. It's a huge amount of money. Second customer gets a 20% discount. 1,000 bushels of wheat become 800. And... and it just seems really underhanded. It seems, you know, sort of uh, uh, why would somebody do that? And he explains why. You notice his intention at the end. When I lose my job here, I'm going to make some friends. When I lose my job here, I'm going to make friends that will welcome me into their homes and maybe give me another job. And what he was doing was using what belonged to his boss to further his own financial future. 
Now, like I said, this is one of the most debated uh, of Jesus' parables. Some scholars suggest that uh, what the manager did was to cut out the exorbitant interest, that uh, ridiculous interest that was being charged. And, and uh, so he eliminated the interest uh, that was being gouged from these clients already. Or maybe he was chopping off his own commission in order to cut these deals. And uh, those writers that uh, put forward those proposals basically are saying, well, it's not as bad as it sounds. And maybe, you know, maybe that's true. But maybe it really is. <laughs> maybe maybe J Jesus told this story uh, just to just sort of portray this man in a really bad light. Uh, it might just be this guy in, in the story Jesus told. He was so desperate, he was willing to further cheat his boss just to solidify his own financial future. People do some crazy things when finances get thin and when they get desperate. I, I've saved this picture for quite some time. Decided I'd use it this week. Um, about 10 years ago, there's a 24-year-old guy in England that um, couldn't find a job, uh, spent his last 500 pounds, which amounts to about 600 of our dollars, out to take a billboard. And this is an actual billboard that he purchased uh, and um, put up in his community. Now, I spent my last 500 pounds on this billboard. Please give me a job. Uh, his name is Adam Pasidi. He'd been working at an arcade while spending months sending out resume after resume after re resume. And maybe you've done that in your, in your life before, trying to find a better job, all to no, no avail. And so he got desperate. He set up this website, employadam.com, and uh, purchased advertising space on this one billboard. It was obviously a publicity stunt. He blew all of his money to do it. Uh, but it worked. Uh, it worked not just because the the billboard, because it was in those early days of social media, and the the thing went viral online, and he was flooded with emails and social media attention, and got all kinds of job offers as a result of his uh, his stunt with the billboard and the the uh, website. The article that I read said that Adam eventually accepted an offer to work for a company that's stated purpose was to come up with innovative ways to help job seekers get hired. Now that seems like a perfect job fit for this guy, right? Uh, that's exactly what he did. But he was desperate and so he got creative. And the manager in the story that Jesus tells here, uh, he was desperate and so uh, he got creative. He didn't know what to do. So he calls in these two clients and slashes their bill in half. He wades into some very, very questionable uh, ethical territory, which makes the ending rather surprising. Because notice how it ended, verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. And you read that and think, what is that all about? This guy was a crook and he stole from uh, basically his boss uh, and slashing those bills in half. Uh, why would the guy who just got cheated applaud the one who cheated him? It's a puzzling story. Not only did the rich man commend the dishonest manager for his shrewd thinking, it seems as though Jesus does, because the rest of the verse, it says, um, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. And Jesus is going to launch off of this rather unusual story that, that focuses on the point that here's an individual that used someone else's property to forward his own financial future and did it in a less than honorable way. But um, there are things that we can learn 
from that. And he's going to move into some lessons to learn. I just call them lessons to learn from a bad example. Some of you have heard that phrase before. And I think it's definitely true here. There are some lessons to learn from a bad example. And right away, Jesus takes this puzzling parable about, about a manager of questionable character. And he starts to pull lessons out of it for life. He begins by saying, People of the world are more shrewd than people of the light. And that's a roundabout way of saying that his followers could learn some things from this situation. And everything he's going to talk about from here to when we stop is about money. But there's some things that he wants us to think about, things that he wants us to learn. Now, the background helps a little bit. I want you to notice the way the chapter started. Jesus is talking to his disciples. And that's important. Every time there's a description of who's hearing this, it kind of matters. All of the last chapter, though we took some time to talk about those three parables, there were the two opposing forces, two opposing audiences. There was the obviously unrighteous tax collectors and sinners, and there was the arrogantly self-righteous Pharisees and scribes. And, and all of chapter 15 deals with those two audiences. And so it is with intention that Luke 16, 16 starts with this emphasize that this is directed towards the disciples. This is for followers of Jesus to think about. People of the light. Um, and in verse 9, he gets right into his point because verse 9 says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Use worldly wealth to make an eternal difference. Um, now, Jesus was not suggesting there that we follow the deceptive practices of the manager. But he was suggesting that we need to look at money kind of the same way that he did. Uh, in this sense, it is something entrusted to us that can be used to shape the future. It is something that is entrusted to us that can be used to shape the future. How the future f looks flows from the way that we use money today. Use worldly wealth to accomplish eternal impact. Uh, and I think a critical piece in understanding this and the reason Jesus told the story why he did is because we are all in a certain sense managers. We are not owners. Uh, whatever level of wealth that you have, that has been entrusted to you by God. That was kind of interesting, sitting in the first half of Sunday school this morning, about how the video talked about this very same thing. You know, that God is the owner. We're just managers. He just uh, gives us what we have. He's blessed us with what we have. And uh, he holds us responsible for how we manage that. Um, and if you question that, just think of a couple verses here. Psalm 24. The psalmist wrote, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. God owns everything, including you and me. Um, he's the owner. It all belongs to him. And I know we tend to recoil against that thought that anybody owns my stuff or that I'm not responsible for my stuff. Um, but it's pretty clear. Uh, places like Deuteronomy chapter 8. Uh, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember, the Lord your God, it's He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms his covenant. God gives you, gives me strength that we need to do the jobs that we have so that we can earn the money that we have. And he can take that away as fast as he wants to. Um, it's all God's. It's not mine. 
And if we have this God-oriented perspective on life, it sort of brings an awareness that, yeah, I'm a manager like that guy. You know, I'm a manager. Um, everything that I, I have, I only have because God gave it to me. God entrusted it to me. My life, my family, uh, my possessions. In a very real way, they are not mine. They are gifts that God has entrusted to me for a time. And that is true for you as well. Uh, that is an extremely countercultural viewpoint. Uh, and pop mentality says, I work for it, it's mine, I do whatever I want with it. Uh, and I get that. Um, we learned that early. I'm hanging around two granddaughters uh, for a little while at Christmas, and mine is one of the first words that toddlers learn, right? Uh, we, we come by that honestly as sinners. Uh, but as Christians, we're reminded throughout Scripture, you know, actually, no. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's God's. It all belongs to God. Uh, it's God's money. And in verse 9, Jesus takes that assumption and, and says, you know, you're, you're a manager. Use wealth that you have. Use the worldly wealth that you have to make a difference for eternity. Uh, make that the priority in what you do. Use money to gain friends for yourself that will car carry over in into eternity. I, it's kind of interesting to me the, the image that he writes there. Get to uh, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. I kind of like that visual. One day we might get to meet some people, maybe hang out in their heavenly living rooms and hear stories about how the investment that we've made with the money or the time and the energy that we didn't know at all about, the results it was bringing changed their lives forever. Uh, one of the commentators that I read this past week um, conjectured some possibilities, one that is kind of fitting for Sanctity of Life Sunday, but, uh, you know, he, he described... Um, some missions type illustrations and we could personalize that you know and think uh, imagine being in heaven one day and a lady from Cameroon or Chile or Brazil comes up and says you know I'm only here today because your church supported this missionary your church helped that church that uh, ministry get started in Sao Paulo and it's your financial gift that changed my eternity uh, but And there's so many possible ways. And this is what Ralph Davis, the illustration that he said, could it be that one day a, a man will come up to you in heaven someday to thank you or your church for pouring funds into a Christian pregnancy counseling center? The caring advice a woman received there led her to keep her baby, a girl, who later became his wife and mother of their four children. Here, think it out. It's quite a project, how to make future friends by how I use worldly wealth right now. Now, I've often said that you have no idea what hangs in the balance of the decisions you make today. And that is true when it comes to money, too. have no idea. Uh, the lives impacted, the people changed, maybe for eternity, because of things we do with our money. Now, Jesus, he jumps right into it there with verse 9. Use worldly wealth to make this eternal impact. And he expands on it, verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? There's a repeated word down through there. It's the word trust. Uh, can God trust you uh, 
with the money he has given you. Now, you know, we all want to just raise our hands and say, oh yeah, God, you can trust me, pour it on. I, I, you know, I'll use it well, trust me with that. But can he really? Think about that. Can God trust you because of what you've shown and the way that you use the money that he's given you already? Uh, whether God can trust us is demonstrated by what we're doing with what we have right now, not with what we might do with what he might give us in the future. There's a lot of focus on the economy and uncertainty and all that, and we're all affected by it. So I, I think this is a really important lesson. So let me get to the lesson here. The first one is this, the true value. The true value of money is discovered when it is invested in ways that produce eternal dividends. That's when you find out, that's when you discover the real value of money. It's not the things you can buy at the grocery store or the, the type of car you can drive. The real value, the true value of money is discovered when we invest it in an eternal, eternal way. Um, for almost 78 years, just think about this past week, this church has been making a difference. 78 years it'll be this year. This church has been making a difference in this community and on, on this corner, different buildings, but on the same piece of property for the past 78 years. Uh, that's an impressive time of longevity and that that type of longevity is only possible because there have been people that have attended here over the 78 years that have given generously. That's the only way that that happens. And, and you can start to categorize and, and inventory uh, things that have happened over 78 years, but all the missionaries that have been supported, um, all the ministries that have continued, all the pastor's paychecks that have been provided, and most importantly, all the people that have responded to the gospel, put their faith in Jesus Christ, all of that only happens because generous people said, God has blessed me and I want to honor him with my finances. And as a church, historically, this church has modeled that. And so, so many of you model that so very well. And I am honored, I'm blessed to be part of this church family with that type of a legacy. But maybe, you know, it's an area where you haven't got a lot of thought to it yet. It's quite natural to conclude, I have to make sure I buy what I want, my retirement's set first, my savings built up first before I get too crazy about giving any type of a percentage of my cash to the church. And I understand that. But I want you to really think about Jesus' point here. Um, your greatest investments are not the ones you're going to get to cash out um, before you die. Your greatest investments are the ones that will last past that. Your greatest investments are those that will carry into eternity. And so, with each of these lessons, I kind of tagged a question at the end. Are your greatest investments doing that? Are your greatest investments in things that will last into eternity? What you do with your finances in 2023, is that going to bear fruit? A thousand years, a million years from now in heaven. Here's a second lesson from the bad example in this parable. Uh, I word it this way. The danger of wealth surfaces when money and accumulating it matters more than God. Look where Jesus goes right next in verse 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Some strong words there. 
He didn't say, notice, he didn't say it'll be, it'll be hard to serve both God and money. He didn't say it's unlikely that you'll be able to pull that, off, that balancing act off of serving God and also serving money. He said it is not possible to serve both God and money. And now the serve part throws a, a, a little bit of a curveball at all of us. I know it's sort of hard to wrap your head around serving a master because that's not our context. Maybe you feel that way with your employer once in a while, but um, uh, you know we we are not servants in that way. And actually, the word that's used here is even worse than that because it's the word that literally means slave. Um, you cannot be a slave to both God and money. A slave is owned by somebody else. And um, in that particular time, slavery wasn't a racial issue at all. In the slightest, it was primarily for one of two reasons. You became a slave because your city or your state was conquered by some other power. Or secondly, you couldn't pay your bills. And so you became the property of the person you owed money to. That's just how it worked. There was no such thing as bankruptcy back then. Slaves were slaves primarily because of financial problems. And so this really connected, uh, to use that word, people could understand the idea. Uh, and so, so many times, Jesus did it, Paul did it through the New Testament, uh, that idea of slavery is, is connected to spiritual truth. For instance, the New Testament teaches before salvation we're all slaves to sin. Uh, I'll give you an example, Romans 6. Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you've come to obey from the, your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. Paul wrote that and said, you know, before salvation, it's a sense you're stuck. You're owned by sin. You, can't have, you don't have a choice. You have, to, you have to sin. But because of Jesus Christ, be very thankful that that's in your past, that you've been changed. You've been freed from that. Um, and yet, even free from sin, you are now slaves to righteousness. We have a different owner as followers of Christ. And Paul said the same thing in, in 1 Corinthians 6, a pretty familiar verse. Don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You've been bought. You've been purchased at a price. So honor God with your body. And, and so, you know, this idea of being slaves uh, in a spiritual sense, it carries through so many ideas in the New Testament. After salvation, you have a new owner. You owe your eternity to the deliverance provided by Jesus. And I, I get it. I get it that we tend to view ourselves not in that way. You know, I'm independent of anyone else. I'm free to do whatever I want. And in a sense, that's true. God grants us individual freedom and, and holds us responsible for our choices. But in another sense, it's not. In a sense, we're always a slave of something. What we let ourselves be a slave to. And Jesus makes it pretty clear here in verse 13. You're either going to be a slave to God or a slave to money. Uh, you're, you either love money and ignore God or you love God and use money for the purposes God wants to use it for. And it's a, a lesson that comes from a bad example. Um, the danger of wealth happens when, when, when money and getting more and trying to figure out what we're going to do with it is the most important thing we think about. Uh, it's the obsession of our hearts um, when we love money more than we focus on loving God. And so the follow-up question is, is it possible that money could be an idol that lurks in your heart? Um, 
Now, Jesus wasn't talking to them, but I've got, got to get through the last little part here. He was talking to uh, his disciples, but Pharisees were hanging around. They overheard this conversation. They sort of sneered at it. They looked at this itinerant teacher who didn't have anything, didn't have a place to lay his own head, followed around by a bunch of homeless guys, uh, and, and say, you know, what is this guy? Where does he come off telling us about money? Look what happens at the end. It says, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There's a whole bunch of stuff in there. It sounds like a, a myriad of topics bunched together, but they really all spin around, I think, verse 15, uh, where Jesus, being God, knew the thoughts of these Pharisees, knew the motives of their hearts. He could look at these religious elitists and know that their values were driven by popularity, by pride, and by possessions. Um, and their love for money, he said. Um, they wanted people to be impressed with them, to follow them, and to give financially so that they had a bigger bank account. And Jesus knew that. Their volume system was driven by personal gain. And so my third lesson from a bad example is this. A value system anchored by greed instead of God's word is highly susceptible to being swayed. When what you value most is money and the stuff that money can buy, very easily you can compromise on things uh, that matter more. Now, let me just quickly touch on verses 16 down to 18. Um, these Pharisees, you know, they were all about the law and the prophets, the Pharisees and religious teachers. They were the caretakers of God's law. Uh, yet they had, and I've talked about it before, they'd added so much filler that God's law became clouded, really, for the average Jew. They liked controlling the narrative, which is why they hated Jesus so much, is because he spoke with authority about the law contradicted all of their interpretations and all of their applications and Jesus was so dangerous in their minds because of that. Uh, Pre-Jesus, pre-John the Baptist, the folks in Israel had been on understand the law the way the Pharisees said to understand it uh, and uh, the way that they demanded it be applied. But now this new message, the message of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and making a difference everywhere. Um, Jesus really shook their stable empire when he came and he preached the good news of God's kingdom and rattled their world. Um, he wasn't tossing out the Old Testament. In fact, he says at the end of verse 17 that, that uh, not a single uh, smallest letter in the Old Testament is going to go unfulfilled. Uh, he was fulfilling the Old Testament and tossing it aside. But... He knew these religious leaders. They had taken the, the God's word and they would sort of twisted it to their own advantage. Uh, and he gives one example at the very end here of how, that, of how that happened. Now verse 18, it seems totally out of place. If you read through this chapter, you think, what's verse 18 even in there for? You know, um, Where he talks about divorce, uh, 
and adultery and all of that. And as a rabbit trail very quickly, uh, while there are valid circumstances for divorce, Jesus uh, emphasizes in Matthew 5 uh, the, um, uh, the circumstance of sexual immor immorality provides uh, context for divorce. Another that Paul outlines in 1 Corinthians 7.15 is abandonment by an unbelieving uh, spouse. Um, but for the most part, divorce is something God hates. In fact, he uses those exact words in Malachi 5. Or Malachi 2, I'm sorry. Um, but in the time that Jesus was ministering in scribal circles, divorce was this hot topic. It, you, you notice if you read through the Gospels, it's brought up a few times with Jesus. And his answer in Matthew 19, when that is brought up, what do you say about divorce? It, he goes back to the original blueprint of Genesis 2. Genesis 2, verse 24, is quoted numerous times throughout Scripture, defines marriage as between one woman and one man in a lifelong permanent commitment. Uh, that's the way God wrote marriage to be, designed marriage to be. Uh, when the law of Moses came around, Deuteronomy 24.1 made an allowance for divorce on the basis of uncleanness. And you can go back and read that passage yourself. But this is where the scribes and the Pharisees uh, started to um, sort of expand God's word. Their idea of uncleanness and what that could mean had been, by the time Jesus uh, was there, uh, really uh, blown out for any reason possible. A husband could divorce his wife for some examples that are on record. Um, being a poor cook, being disrespectful to her mother-in-law, failing to give her husband a son, being less beautiful than other women were all grounds for divorce that were an interpretation of that one word, unclean. Uh, even today, you can look at that and think that that's ridiculous. But Jesus knew all of that. He knew their hearts. He knew the things they were teaching, the things that they were promoting. And he says here, you have abandoned the value system that you claim to operate by. You've abandoned the law and instead give in to these cultural influences of, of our time when it comes to one of the core institutions of human life, and that's marriage itself. And if you ask why, you just have to drop it into what Jesus has been talking about. The why is pretty obvious. He knew they loved money more than they loved God's word. The Pharisees were swayed by the values in their culture because it was rich men who were the ones seeking divorces and the rich men gave lots of money to the synagogues. And Jesus makes the point, I think it's still a point for us, um, a value system not anchored in God's word is highly, highly subject to compromise. That may be an obvious question, but do you think that happens today? think that happens in our, in our world at all, our time? Do you think the potential of being swayed from biblical truth and a value system happens at all? I think it happens all the time. All the time. And you and I as Christians, uh, we're right in the middle of that. And it may be slightly off topic for money, but I think it's just so critical to ask, do the things that I value most, do the, does the belief system that I hold to, does it come from here? Or does it come from the culture that I live in? Um, are you compromising biblical values due to pressure from our world? Are you being swayed? Because it happens. It happens so fast. 
So let's make this practical real quick at the end. You know, money's one of those contradictory things in all of our lives. We need it. You'll need more of it if you're going to buy eggs this week. You know, the price keeps going up on that stuff. Um, but it brings so many dangers along. And so be alert to those dangers and commit this week uh, to manage money uh, in your life God's way. Uh, I didn't put this on the handout. You don't have to write it down, but think about it. First one is this. Consider the eternal reward of what you're doing with your finances. Right now, this year, maybe you've got a budget, whatever. Consider the eternal reward of what you're doing with your finances. Um, he wants you to use it for your needs. He wants you to enjoy the life it provides. But at the same time, be sure that you prioritize using it in a way that changes eternity. That's invested in eternity. Think about how you, that can happen in your life. Um, you know, money sermons are awkward. It'd be easier to skip over the passages like this as a pastor. You know, let's get on to something else. Um, but I'll just be frank. You know, the reason, besides my commitment to preach through Scripture, um, I don't want to get in heaven someday and somebody tracks me down. Hey, Pastor, why didn't you tell me that we could have used our money to make a difference now? Yeah, we could. You know, how come you, did, you never you never covered that? Why didn't you tell us about the opportunities we had then to invest in what could be returning some huge investments for us right now? I don't want that. Uh, and so, uh, consider the eternal reward of what you're doing right now. What are you doing right now? And is it shaping? Eternity. Second thing is this. Check to see if anything matters more than God in your heart. And that's not just money. I mean, possessions, sure. People. Um, uh, there's a whole list of things. Anything that matters more to you than God could be under the description of an idol in your heart. And it's worth checking. It's worth checking often. Because idols happen in more ways than we initially realize. And then the last thing is this. Commit to keeping God's Word as the bedrock foundation for the value system you have, the belief system you, you uh, operate by, the standards you hold, despite the cultural pressure to the contrary. Because we live in a world full of some pressure. And it's only when we stay anchored to God's Word uh, that we're going to make a difference. If you take those three things, you apply these three lessons from bad example... Um, you will have uh, you will have benefited from the really puzzling parable, but you'll also leave a legacy, a legacy that's the opposite, I think, of a bad example. Uh, you can shape someone else's eternity. You hold the potential. You can please your heavenly Father by the decisions you make, and you can show in a gray world that there is a very clear very bright um, light is just anchored to the word of truth. Um, you can impact by the decisions you make, the people around you. And as odd as it sounds, so much of that hinges on keeping the paradox, the puzzling paradox of money in the right place in your heart. Hey, we uh, went kind of long today. So I'm going to just close in prayer and I'm going to ask you to join me by standing and let's pray together. We'll be dismissed. Father God, thank you so much that you have blessed us in so many ways. Uh, we are blessed spiritually uh, through the opportunity to be forgiven and have an eternal home as our future to look forward to.
But we're also blessed just every single day in so many ways. Uh, we take a lot of things for granted that we shouldn't. And even the material things and the money that we uh, have in our bank accounts this week, it's there because you gave it to us. And you hold us responsible for what we do with it. And it's just so practical to think, am I doing that right? Am I using it well? Is eternity being shaped because of what I do today? Uh, Father, I don't know how this might apply and where it might tug at different needs in different lives, but you do. And so I pray you'll use it the way you want to in each of our hearts. Help us to be people uh, that show we, we move in a different way, we have a different motivation. Even with the money we have, we're operating under different principles um, because we understand you're God. You love us, you've blessed us, and we want to honor you in all that we do. In Jesus' name I pray. Mm -hmm.